And if there is a, a hardness of heart, if I am unable to forgive, what, what Paul talks about is the, the offended type of person. If there's a hardness of heart such that I am constantly building up walls or unable to forgive or unable to treat others well, even if they mistreat me, if there is any hardness of heart within me, I am going to have marital problems at the least i am going to mistreat my spouse at the least and the ultimate result is is divorce In uh, 1 Corinthians, so far, Paul has been getting at the unity of the church. Uh, The church in Corinth was divided. Uh, It was divided into several different sects, uh, several different denominations within the church. Uh, Denominationalism was happening in the local church at Corinth. And so Paul is addressing this division, uh, and the first claim he makes is that uh, unity happens by maturity, uh, that when the church pursues maturity in the faith when the church pursues the knowledge of god the church becomes unified in the faith Uh, the people are humbled uh, rather than full of themselves Um, when sound doctrine permeates the church uh, a correct knowledge of who god is and what god is doing and a relational knowledge of god not only a, a knowledge of mind but a knowledge of heart when these things permeate the local church Uh, People consider others to be more important than themselves, and they cause less division when church discipline is practiced appropriately. Uh, It is for the benefit of the one living in sin uh, and for the church body. And when Paul admonishes the church not to be an offended people, he admonishes them not to be an offended people because offended people end up wronging and defrauding others even if they don't mean to Uh, and he's going to continue these ideas uh, as as he talks more about marriage of course we've already gotten a dose of marriage Uh, we've already started chapter seven here Uh, we've gotten a dose of singleness and paul's position on singleness it is better for one to be as he is to devote him or herself wholly to the lord such that even if we are married we know we know how to live 100% for God and not be entirely dependent on our spouses today we pick up the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 and Paul continues his excursus 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 I don't know I figured it out uh, chapter 7 verse 10 he continues talking about marriage but to the married I give this instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, And she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy." Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. This is a particularly tough passage of Scripture to exegete. Uh, because in here you have 
not only marriage, but divorce. And you have Paul encouraging partners who are already together to live together, even if one is an unbeliever. And so you, you have to deal with the, the whole conception of marriage as between equally yoked individuals, two people who are in Christ, and that being perceived as a biblical instruction somewhere, but then Paul seeming to offer opposite instruction here um, before we start. I know that the divorce rate is high in our country, in our nation. Um, the divorce rate is almost the same for people who do not claim to be Christians as people who profess to be Christians. Now you start looking at uh, regular church attendance, like people who are in church regularly, the divorce rate is significantly lower there. But as far as people who just profess to be Christians, the divorce rate is about the same as uh, as with them as it is with with atheists as with materialists so divorce is is quite the issue in our time and divorce has touched quite a few people in our own community and in our own congregation uh, including myself um, so when i talk about divorce uh, i hope you understand that i do so with the utmost sympathy for the person who has been through a divorce and I do so knowing what it is like to have parents who are biological parents who are divorced um, because of abuse within the household. That being said, let's begin walking through this passage, starting in verse 10. But to the married, I give instructions, not I but the Lord. Paul makes a clarification here that he hasn't made previously in 1 Corinthians. Here, he wants the church at Corinth to know, I am speaking the words of God here. Now, this is particularly interesting because later he says, now the Lord's not saying what I'm going to say next. I'm saying it. And so we'll talk about that when we get there. Like, is Paul adding to the scriptures now? Is Paul teaching his own words? We'll ask that question when we get to that verse. But right now, we just know that Paul, he wants people to know, I am speaking God's words here. What I am about to tell you, this is explicit in the Old Testament. This is explicit in the Tanakh. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. This is explicit in the Bible. That the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. There are no qualifications made here. Uh, Paul doesn't say except for in the case of infidelity. And Paul does not say, unless a someone is being abused. Paul doesn't say, unless it's bad for the kids. He simply gives this instruction. Do not leave your spouse. It's wrong. And do not cause your spouse to leave that is wrong now the heart of this and where it is explicit in the old testament malachi chapter 2 verse 16 where malachi just comes out and and says it god hates and a very strong word hates with a passion divorce and this is hard for 21st century american ears um, I, I often hear it levied against the church, uh, particularly when we talk about abortion, right? And we talk about how uh, abortion is this terrible thing, and it is a terrible thing, an atrocity in the eyes of God. Um, it's murder. We talk about how abortion is murder, it's this atrocity in the eyes of God, and then somebody says, well, you know, the church sure does spend a lot of time talking about that sin, and not any time talking about many other sins. And one of the sins they throw out is the sin of divorce. Uh, brothers and sisters, I, I agree with that. And the church should pay attention. We, we, we very rarely teach the importance of marital faithfulness. And I think it's because we live in a 
a society that is saturated with divorce. And I think some preachers are afraid to to step on that landmine because there are so many people within the organized church who have been divorced. Now understand, if you've been divorced, I, I, I have no apathy toward you. I do not think little of you, just like I do not think little of anyone else who has sinned against me or against the Lord or against anyone. I, I'm not in a position to think little of anyone, but we do have to be honest about sin and what sin is. I have, I have participated in my fair share of sin, and just because divorce isn't one of those doesn't mean my sins are not just as bad. Here... Paul, reflecting the heart of Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, says, do not. Just simple. Do not. Now here we have a little bit of a conundrum because Jesus seemed to have taught something different. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. Let me just read this for you. In fact, when you're reading through 1 Corinthians and you read... Paul's excursus, there it is, on divorce. Uh, Matthew 19, if you know it, comes right to mind. This is is, uh, chapter 19 in Matthew's gospel became very popular in the evangelical church uh, because people sought to justify the divorce rate and their reasons for divorce. So they would say, there's an exception clause in Matthew chapter 19. And that exception clause is unless it's on the basis of infidelity, right? Well, let's read Matthew chapter 19 together and we'll see what Jesus is teaching and we'll see if, if Paul really is teaching something different from what Jesus taught. Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Is it lawful? According to the Pharisees, no, not lawful. They wanted to know what Jesus thought. And they had their own own motivation for that. Verse 4, And he, Jesus, answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There Jesus appeals to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 for the definition of marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman in covenant. Covenant that lasts forever. A covenant that means God has joined you together. Therefore, there should be no separation. No man can separate that. Not even not even you. Right? God has joined the two together. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus' answer is pretty clear. No. Divorce is not lawful on any grounds. People skip that and jump right to the exception clause to make it mean what they want it to mean in order to justify their own sin. There's no exception clause here. Jesus is perfectly plain. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Period. Now the Pharisees insert themselves again. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Even if they don't believe divorce is lawful. It seems they're trying to entrap Jesus here. The Pharisees were were good at trying to do that. They weren't good at doing it. They were good at trying, trying. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? I imagine this was also a topic of theological debate in the synagogue. Oh, you want an interesting conversation? Let's let's ask this question and let's talk about it until it's time to go, right? Uh, we don't have any questions like that in the church today, do we? Uh, we have plenty of those. So they ask this to Jesus. And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted. Now, permitted is a key word. Permitting is quite different from commanding. 
it seems Moses did not actually command anyone to give anyone a certificate of divorce. But Moses did permit it in the law. Why? Because of the, the hardness of people's hearts. What leads to divorce? Well, somebody messing up doesn't lead to divorce. Uh, I, I would argue that not even infidelity necessarily leads to divorce. It's a hardness of heart, according to Jesus. And if there is a, a hardness of heart, if I am unable to forgive, what, what Paul talks about is the, the offended type of person. If there's a hardness of heart such that I am constantly building up walls or unable to forgive or unable to treat others well, even if they mistreat me, if there is any hardness of heart within me, I am going to have marital problems at the least I am going to mistreat my spouse at the least and the ultimate result is is divorce you think about every case you know of where somebody has gotten a divorce and what escalation led to a termination of contract relationship Always, it always escalated from a simple hardness of heart. I, I imagine. I don't think. I don't think you could find a case where it didn't just escalate from somebody's hardness of heart. And Christians are called to have soft hearts, to weep with those who weep, to suffer with those who suffer, to not take it too personally when people attack us. To be able to forgive because we consider others to be more important than ourselves. And this is especially true in the context of a marriage relationship. So, so Jesus points out their, their misappropriation of Scripture. Moses did not command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. No, he permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. And Jesus says, but from the beginning, it was not this way. This is not God's design for marriage. And in verse 9 in Matthew chapter 19, this is where we find what many people refer to as the exception clause. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, if we interpret verse 9 to mean that there is this exception clause for divorce, that somehow this makes divorce okay, then we disagree with how Jesus has already answered the question when he said, no, divorce is not lawful. So when Jesus says this, or gives this is an exception in some way, but in order to know, we just, we just need to look at the grammar of the verse here. And you can see it in English. Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, so we know that divorce is already sin, Whoever divorces his wife. And then he gives the exception, except for immorality. And the word immorality there being the word porneia, referring to sexual sin, could refer, refer to infidelity. Sexual infidelity could refer to simple lust, the observation of pornographic material, which didn't exist at the time in the form it does today, but still did exist. This would be someone who... Uh, tries to define his or her own sexual identity or orientation, right? People oftentimes say, Jesus didn't talk about that explicitly, but that is what this word means. Jesus said this. It is in the red letters, right? Except for porneia, this sexual immorality, this self-identification, orientation, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So divorce is always a sin. But where divorce is, you are you are either an adulterer or not. Not all divorce is adulterous. And so if someone divorces because of immorality, that divorce is not also adultery. But if someone divorces and the spouse has not been unfaithful, then that divorce is not 
adultery. So in one case, someone is guilty of two sins rather than one. You see, and in one case, someone is only guilty of the divorce. So what Jesus teaches in Matthew 19, it Paul agrees with it. He's teaching it. God hates, absolutely hates, divorce. And Paul wants people to know. Now, are you ready to move on? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. But to the rest, those who are not in this category of marriage, uh, those who are in a marriage, but it's, it's not between two believers, like he was talking about in verses 10 and, and 11, to the rest, I say not the Lord. All right, Paul, what do you mean you say and not the Lord? Is it right for you to add your own words to the Scriptures? We, if if somebody stood up in the pulpit today and said, now God didn't say this, but I'm going to tell you, we should have a problem with that. Um, We might want to say, get out of the pulpit. One of our elders here would most definitely stand up and usher someone away from the podium, okay? Because we don't want anything added to the text of Scripture. Yet Paul, writing to the Corinthians, I profess to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. That's what he said earlier in the book, right? Is now saying, yeah, God didn't say this, but I am. What is going on here? Should we should we trust Paul at this point? It is quite dangerous to read this with 21st century American eyes. Paul here is essentially saying this isn't explicit in the Old Testament. What I'm about to say, it's not explicit in the Old Testament. But it is an application of what the Old Testament says. He's about to apply the Old Testament. He's saying, this isn't explicit, but I'm, I'm going to apply the Old Now, we're okay with people doing that. We do that every Sunday. We do that in Bible study. How does this apply in 21st century America? Look, when the law was written, when Torah was written, when the prophets were written, when the history was written, when the, when the poems were written in the Old Testament, Christianity did not exist. <laughs> Does that surprise anyone? Christianity isn't like the oldest religion. Just like Baptists aren't the, you know, the the truest denomination because there weren't any denominations when the church was formed, right? Yeah, John John the Baptist was not the first Baptist, right? When Paul's saying this isn't explicit. I've done some work here in order to apply the text correctly to you in your current circumstance. Because there are Gentile Christians now, and the church at Corinth is made up of Gentile Christians. Uh, Israel was not to marry outside of Israel, was not to intermarry with the heathen nations. And Paul is taking this truth from the Old Testament and the fact that God hates divorce, and, and he's doing some work to apply this. Now I'm okay with that. But the rest, I say, not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must, must not divorce her. Being unequally yoked in this sense doesn't seem to be that big of a a deal in the context of a marriage relationship to Paul. In fact, Paul says, you must not. You must be faithful. You must not divorce her. You are to be the picture of redemption here. I think about Hosea and Gomer, right? Old Testament stuff. The prophet Hosea, God instructs Hosea to go take a, go take a wife. After Hosea takes a wife, she gives herself over to some kind of prostitution she is unfaithful 
And God's instruction to Hosea was, Hosea, go get her back. Not, Hosea, divorce her. You are perfectly within your rights. No. He instructed his prophet Hosea, go get her back. Redeem her. She is a picture of national Israel. And Hosea, you are the picture of the suffering servant, of the great redeemer, of Messiah. So Hosea obeys, and he goes, and he redeems Gomer, and he brings her back, and he forgives her for her adultery, her infidelity. Such is what God does with the nation of Israel. Over and over again in the Old Testament, and I believe still today. This is what God does with us as Christians. We are unfaithful to Him, and His response is to buy us back from the darkness with the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. To buy us back from the darkness with the blood of Jesus Christ, to redeem us, to bring us back into His kingdom, to to forgive us even though we prostitute ourselves out to the ways of the world. God retrieves His people, and He leaves the 99 who are in the pen to go retrieve the one who left to go to the world. Like That's how serious God is about maintaining His relationship with us such that none can fall out of His hand if we are there. Praise God. And then you read in Genesis 1 and 2 how God created marriage. And you read in Ephesians 5 how how this marriage relationship is to reflect the relationship God has with His people. And you read in 1 Corinthians about, about how the believing spouse is to be utterly faithful even when their partner doesn't doesn't believe to be a picture of God's faithfulness to his church even when there is an unbelieving spouse in the relationship this this is the purpose of marriage is it not to be a picture of redemption well, marriage is not selfish it's not based on selfish desire or Lust and, and marriage is not operated by our own feelings or pet peeves or our tendency to get so offended like we have previously read here in First Corinthians. We understand the purpose God has for marriage and that helps us to understand Paul's instructions here. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. She must not make things difficult for her unbelieving spouse so that he will leave, right? She must not explicitly say, you get out of my house. There's no qualification here. Paul, I think, is really just trying to represent the Old Testament text well and the teachings of Jesus Jesus well, resolving again, even though he must make this application, resolving to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified so that the congregation may grow into maturity and come into the unity of maturity in, in the faith must not send her husband away. Well, what is this we hear about people being unequally yoked? Now, that verse is found in 2 Corinthians. <coughs> Surprise, another letter to the church at Corinth, right? And in the context of that verse, Paul is not talking about marriage at all. He's talking about the church living in partnership with the world such that the church looks like the world in order to attract the world. Do not be unequally yoked. And I've, I've heard that to be so misappropriated. I, oh, I've heard people use that to say that white people should not marry black people. What a misappropriation of Scripture. Yeah? We don't care about that. 
You want a mixed marriage and you want to have beautiful mixed babies? Go right ahead. Mixed babies are beautiful, aren't they? I've also heard it to justify divorce. My spouse is not a Christian. Therefore, God doesn't want me to be with you. Wrong. God instructs us toward faithfulness. And when it comes to being unequally yoked, He instructs the church not to operate like the world. That is the context. Context is is key with anything we're trying to interpret. Not only the Bible, context is key. Therefore, do not seek to get a divorce because marriage is a picture of God's relationship with humanity. Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. This is some interesting and thought-provoking language, is it not? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the believing wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Did you know the word sanctified is a made-up word? One, because all words are made-up words. Yeah. Two, because uh, the New Testament is the only place this word sanctified in the Greek is used. In all the Greek literature ever produced, the only place we have found this word for sanctified is in the New Testament. Which means, when I make up words, I'm not in such bad company. Right? But this word sanctified is a, is a modified version of hagios. Hagios means holy. That is used elsewhere. That's a commonly used word to refer to something that is set apart for a particular use. And it had positive connotations, right? Holy, 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 holy. When we say God is holy, it means he is set far apart from anything we know here on earth. He, he transcends and his presence is unlike the presence of anything else we can. He is set apart. Holy. When we come to grips with the holiness of God, such a reverence overcomes our spirit. That is not illustrated well by anything of this world. About the closest we get to holiness in America is probably a a funeral. But even that doesn't come close to the reverence that overcomes our spirit when we when we recognize the holiness of God. This word sanctified, it's like Paul took the word holy, hagias, and he added a few letters to make it to make it mean something like holified. That's about what Paul was doing, okay? No need for academic language here. Holified. For the unbelieving husband is holified through his wife, and the the unbelieving wife is holified through her believing husband. Now this is really difficult to tackle from any perspective other than the perspective of a covenant theologian. For instance, you take the dispensational approach to this verse. And you come out reading it something like, For the unbelieving husband is made a better husband through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made a better wife through her believing husband. Like somehow this works for some kind of behavior modification, causes them to to think differently. Somehow in the marriage relationship they are temporally sanctified, corrected, made to look more like Christ without actually being in Christ, okay? So you take a dispensational approach, and that's almost where you have to to end up. But you take a covenant approach. In a covenant approach, you recognize through the Old Testament, by the way, speaking of the Old Testament, Paul, through this passage, he is, he is affirming the instructions of the Old Testament, He is upholding the Old Testament as binding for the Christian life today. It's like 
it's like the New Testament is built upon the Old Testament or something, and it's it's almost like almost like the Old Testament cannot be forsaken. We cannot unhitch from the Old Testament. At least if we want to believe the New Testament, we can't. If you forsake the Old Testament, you also have to forsake Paul's words. He, he upheld the Old Testament as a standard for Christian living, not only Jewish living, but Christian living, the church. You take a covenant approach to this, and covenantal theologians recognize the covenants of the Old Testament as a type of the covenant we have in Christ. And seeing as marriage is a picture of God's relationship with, with His church, and we call that a covenant relationship, it all seems to fit pretty nicely. In the covenant of the Old Testament, the, the covenant people of God did not represent the eschatological people of God. Well, they represented the eschatological community, but they were not part for part the eschatological community. There were reprobate people in the nation of Israel. People who would never be atoned for forever. Do you remember reading that in 1 Samuel about Eli's children? Would never be atoned for for ever yet they were israelites part of the covenant community but not part of the the eschatological people of god but the visible church is a covenant community kind of like this everyone in the covenant community is seen to be a christian right at least by confession but not everyone in the covenant community is part of the eschatological people of God. i put it another way, not everyone in church is saved. Right? There is the covenant community, and those who are in Christ are necessarily part of the covenant community. You can't get away from that, right? If you love Christ, you love His bride. He calls you into His kingdom and makes you a part of His visible kingdom. You can't separate the local church from having Christ. If you have Christ, you are in a covenant body of believers. But you you work it the other way around. Not everyone who is in the covenant body of believers is in Christ. It doesn't work that way because this isn't a works-based system. So when Paul here talks about being holified or an unbelieving husband is holified through his wife, that's because his wife is part of the covenant community. And through marriage, he is a part of the covenant community set apart, made holy in God's eyes as part of the covenant community. But that does not mean he is in Christ, part of the eschatological people of God. He is unbelieving. So you, you cannot, when you try to interpret these verses for, without recognizing the, the covenantal leaning of the Bible, you have to do a lot of gymnastics to, to make this say something that makes sense and is coherent with the rest of 1 Corinthians and the rest of the Bible. But if you come at this from a covenant perspective, the believing husband is sanctified? Well, yeah, that makes sense. He's part of the covenant community. And you can just read the Bible for what it is. And that reveals something to us about perhaps the theological leanings we should have because the Bible leads us to do that. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified, holified through his wife, part of the covenant community on this earth. And the unbelieving wife is holified through her believing husband, through marriage, part of the covenant community on this earth. For otherwise... Your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And I have heard some people do some atrocious things with this little piece of information, too. For instance, saying something like, Parents, you better be in church. Because if you're not in church, you're not covering your children. You are their umbrella. And I have actually heard people take this text and say that children who are in families that are not Christians are not saved because they are unclean. Uh. And I was under the impression that Jesus felt so strongly about children that if anybody kept them from him, he said it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and be tossed into the sea. Mm-hmm. 
So that can't be a correct interpretation here. But if we picture covenant community, and we recognize that Paul is talking about covenant community, the local church, otherwise, if your children are not with a believing parent, they are unclean outside the covenant community. Well, yeah, plenty of children outside the covenant community. That doesn't mean they won't be saved. It means they're outside the covenant community. Unclean in that way. But now, because they they have a, a believing parent, particularly a believing parent that remains with an unbelieving parent, so that there's, what, no custody battles? Yeah? No swapping children during the week or the month or however they worked that out in the first century. That'd be interesting to look at, wouldn't it? But now they are holy. They are part of the covenant community. And here, Paul actually uses the word holy to describe what he was talking about with the word sanctified before. So we know that's what it means. It doesn't mean something less than that. This this is about the covenant community here. Consider not only your unbelieving spouse to be more important than yourself, also consider your children to be more important than yourself. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what Paul is teaching here. Verse 15, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Why? Because it's not a legitimate. It's not a legitimate marriage. It's a contract, right? Legitimate marriage is two people put together by God who are not to be separated. Well, God doesn't Himself string together, make one flesh, which is which is more than just about sex, right? Becoming one flesh, that's not the sexual act. I hear that too. Like, becoming one flesh, that's, that's the consummation of the marriage. No, it isn't. Becoming one flesh is having a Holy Spirit-led covenant between two people under God and the Holy Spirit. Actually, this, is, this is a spiritual act. It actually takes those two people and knits them together in, in a way that makes divorce impossible. <laughs> yeah? Not according to the standards of the world or the laws of the world. Look, the world can have its marriage. I, that seems pretty shallow to me anyway. The world can have its version of marriage. I don't want anything to do with that. Man, I want this one flesh knit together deep relationship with a woman that God has called me to be with. And there are some in this life God has not called them to be with anyone. Right? Doesn't knit them together. I mean, quite literally, those... Those whom God has called into marriage, quite literally, they have a soul mate. That is a real thing. And God himself knits that person together. And why do you think Paul, who was most likely married, and his spouse passed away, says, I desire that you be like me, not getting married again. Well, once... Once you're with your soulmate, you know, nobody else is sufficient. Nobody else can live up to that. You're better off not putting them through the pain of having to live up to your soulmate, right? But it's also good for you because you could serve God, and we've already covered that in First Corinthians here. But if the un- unbeliever leaves, let him. You are not under bondage in such cases. God hasn't made you one flesh. God hasn't knit you together like that. But God has called us to peace. Now this is interesting. God has called us to peace. Um, The believing spouse is to let the unbelieving partner leave 
because God has called us to peace. Does that strike anyone? That God actually desires peace? Sometimes we don't act like God actually desires peace, right? By the way, this is June. June, within the last few years, has been designated, what, Pride Month in a very, in a very real and a very obtrusive way. And here, Paul talking into the marriage relationship and into sexual sin and into porneia, which in, includes homosexuality and which includes sexual orientations that are not natural and which includes sexual identities that are not natural and which includes lust and which includes those pornographic images that are so prevalent on the television screen, sexualizing, over, overtly sexualizing creatures God has created in His image. And parades in which people take the symbol God provided to, to signify His promise that He would never destroy the world again. And they take that symbol and they wave it in, in God's face like, Ha, God, you can't do anything now because of our sin because you made this promise, right? And Paul is speaking into this. First century Rome was about as bad, okay? If you understand the imperial cult and some of the cult prostitution that was going on and the parades and the orgies going on at this time as, as Paul is, is writing this and then with, with, all of this, with all of this sinfulness in view... Paul first in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, don't judge those outside the church. Well, that's not the mentality most professing Christians take, is it? No, we want to just straight up condemn people. And that's where we land and we we complain about it. And then here in chapter 7, with the same sins in view, this time within the context of the marriage relationship and and infidelity, which, which leads to all that, says, because God has called you to peace. What? God, I thought you wanted me to stand up and cry out against the sin of the world and how terrible the, and how terrible the world is. And I, I, thought you, I thought you wanted me to complain about these things that are, that are so wrong and will lead to so many problems. God, I, I thought you wanted me to stand against the sins of the world. Yet consistently in Scripture, we are instructed to not stand up and condemn the world. Hmm. We are identified as a people called to peace by God. We are instructed to speak into the issues of the world with reason and speak the gospel. And you think about what the gospel is, what is it? It's a message of peace between God and man. We learn a little bit here about how we are to interact with unbelievers God's God's marriage biblical marriage is so much more satisfying and so much more fruitful than anything the world has to offer worldly marriage it always leads to trouble always leads to frustration but God has called us to, to peace What have we ever gained by complaining about it anyway? Nothing. The world takes our pearls, that biblical accountability. The world takes our pearls and tramples them under its feet. All we do is stir up controversy and hardship and, and hatefulness. 
And as a result of the way we handle things when we're trying to fix it, the world spirals into its vicious cycle, out of control, and gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Have you ever, I don't know, tried to help someone so much and you have good intent, right? It helps someone so much and you you end up being the one who pushes them over the edge. That's kind of what happens, isn't it? We get so intense and we have such strong feelings about things, whatever they are, we end up being the ones in Paul's words earlier in 1 Corinthians, wronging and defrauding others because we are offended. Yeah? Instead of being offended by all the stuff we see, what if we spoke life? What if we took the time to pray? What if we shared the gospel? What if we spoke with reason? Instead of returning hate for hate. Well, the world's not going to change as long as we're returning hate for hate, y'all. God has called us to peace. Such is true when an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing partner. The believing partner is called to peace. Not to think about the one who left with disdain not to malign him or her. And we have a peace that surpasses understanding, do we not? Now Paul presents a rhetorical question. Verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? When I went to youth camp as a teenager, we talked about how we hoped our girlfriends would come to know Christ as a result of our dating them. And the youth leader said, you know, missionary dating doesn't really work, right? You're you're just coming up with an excuse for yourself to date who you want, (laughs) right? Say, using, using evangelism as an excuse to build your own kingdom on Christ's back. Uh, yeah, there are quite a few ways we do that. Missionary dating is one. And in the, in the case of the Corinthians, apparently marriage was being used the same way. But if I just keep them around, if they just see my example, if I can just prod the gospel into them, they'll, they'll come to the faith. And Paul says, you don't know. You don't know. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? It's not up to you. Which I think hurts us a little bit because we care about people. Yeah, There are many people in our lives we care about and we want to come into the faith. And Same message. It's not up to us. Sometimes that's true too, right? You spend so much time and, and energy trying to, trying to, trying to get the gospel into somebody, trying to scare the hell out of somebody. <laughs> yeah, and all you do is push them away from the church and away from the gospel. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How, how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only, this is the only way it happens. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one. Oh, that's God's work, not mine. As God has called each in this manner, let him walk. There are two very important doctrines present in verse 17. The first is predestination. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one will he or she be saved or not. Predestination. The second is foreordination. 
as God has called each one in this manner, let him walk. Oh, well, God has called Christians to walk in peace. If we don't walk in peace, we prove not to be Christians. So we consider our ways. If we are not, if we are not peaceable, we probably do not know Christ. We're not bearing the fruit of repentance or salvation or the humility that comes with Christ. We, we are pugnacious instead of peaceable, which is not consistent with a relationship that, that, that God has called us into. This predestination works such that God assigns to each one. Assigns. I don't, I don't know if I much like the language there. I like to think that I made my own choice. In a way, I did choose to come to Christ. Right? I, by my own volition, I came to Christ. But I, I would not have been able to if He did not assign that to me and the Holy Spirit didn't come in and first regenerate my heart. Predestination. And then foreordination. As God has called each in this manner, let him walk. He's called us to peace, yes. And he's he is here taking credit for every circumstance of our lives. This is the providence of God. He has called us into each of our circumstances. He, he called us into the, the family that we were born into. He called us to be conceived. He's the one who formed us. He wasn't surprised by the circumstances we had growing up. He called me to live with an abusive father. He called me to to bear with the the people who have made me enemies over the year and the people who persecute me. He called me to, to live in those circumstances. And it's called me to peace. He has called me to be here in Pierce, Arizona on this Sunday morning presenting this message. That's foreordination. This is decided. This is in the mind of God. And that doesn't mean I don't have volition. It means God is the one working all things together. He provides all circumstances. He provides salvation. And boy, when we recognize the, the providence of God, we learn a little bit about what it means to be content, don't we? We learn a lot about what it means to be content. Rather than prideful, rather than thinking we deserve more. Rather than thinking we deserve to be respected or well thought of. Rather than thinking we deserve anything, we recognize this is everything, a gift from God. Praise, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That praise comes from a heart of contentment. Understanding providence leads to contentment, and contentment leads to a happy life no matter our circumstances. You've heard the phrase, beauty is in the eye of a beholder. Yes. That's it. We don't have to live, woe is me. We don't have to be little Eeyores running around, if you even know who Eeyore is. Okay. No, we can be content, and that leads to a happy life. You want the secret to a happy life? Contentment. You want the secret to contentment? Understanding the providence of God. Maturity leading to unity through contentment. How about that? You see what Paul is doing here. And we remember that peace here precedes justice. And the world gets that backwards. The world wants to bring justice first. 
Justice first, justice first. We, we talk about justice all day long. Justice, 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 justice. Bring justice. And God's going to judge you and bring justice to you. That's, that's the world talking. Apparently, peace comes first. And the way God is restoring justice to the world is through the gospel of, of peace. Peace.